Welcome to Antioch Raleigh's weekly online sermon. We hope that you are encouraged by this word. For more information on Antioch Raleigh or access to our other online sermons, visit us at AntiochRaleigh.com. Okay, I'm going to do something this morning. I got up early this morning and I, I felt like I, uh, I said, okay, Lord, you know, what, what do you want to do for this morning? And anything different or special. And the Lord said, I want you to move the pulpit. (laughs) Now, I come from a Methodist tradition, and uh, the Methodist comes from an Anglican tradition, and there's actually several traditions that are kind of pre-Reformation, including Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox, that uh, they never have the pulpit in the center. And, uh, you know, most of the Protestant uh, streams always put the pulpit right in the center. Why? Because the Word of God is central. We all really appreciate that truth. The Word of God is central. But you know what else is central? Is the atonement. The atonement is central. And so, believe it or not, they had a church split over that, and they keep having them, and we're just not going to do that. So today we're going to make sure that the uh, central word is also acknowledging the centrality of the atonement this morning. So don't, I, I, will, I will talk to you too. Uh, as I have been... Uh, Uh, sharing. I want to start out today. We're going to continue our overall series, which is relational and emotional, healthy spirituality. But our subtext today is slaying the giants. And I, 25 years ago, uh, a dear brother, incredible Bible teacher, who's now in his 90s, Bob Mumford, taught us in a very small group about dealing with the seven giants. And I will just say, when I heard those seven giants, it was such a revelation, a clarity of understanding. And essentially, these seven giants that we're going to be going through, as we've gone through the last few weeks, we've just covered two. I'm going to ambitiously try to cover how we kill two more of those giants. (laughs) All of this is a uh, found its, its genesis is in Deuteronomy. And in it, it says, I'm going to give you, I'm going to summarize it here for you. In fact, I think uh, maybe you have it. Uh, genesis, uh, yeah, 7, 1 through 4. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, The Hivites, the the Perizzites, uh, not to be confused with the Parasites, and the Jebusites. Okay, now, um, I'm going to drive these nations out. And the reason we use the word giant is because in Exodus, when this same event is happening, Moses sends out 12 spies. And they come back, and their report, 10 of the 12, was there are giants in the land. These are giants. They are 
We are much smaller in comparison to them. We are like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And, of course, that led to a major unbelief that infected the camp. And it caused Israel not to be able to enter the promised land during that 40-year lifespan. Now, one of the characteristics of Deuteronomy chapter 7 is <clears throat> the Lord is being very specific about how they were to deal with these nations. And he's very specific and very uncompromising. And one of the things he says is, look at this, make no tree. He said, first of all, look at this. They've de- he, God's delivered them over to you. And you have defeated them, and you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. Now that is pretty severe language, isn't it? Well, now let's turn to Deuteronomy 7, verse 22. And I want you to... um, Well, hey, before we go there... The next verse right after this. This is what you are to do to them. Okay, we don't read this part. So, so you've just gotten this order that says you're to utterly stray, destroy them. So let, let me define how you destroy them. Okay? Here's what he says. Verse 5. This is what you're to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Ashtaroth poles, which were... Um, sex religion altars burn their idols with fire did you notice he didn't say what to do to them it's what they had that they were supposed to destroy for you are a people holy to the Lord your God the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth To be his people, his treasured possession. Now listen to this relational heart of God. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were a great bunch of people. In fact, you were the least. You were the fewest. But it was because of the Lord loved you. And we started out talking that the supreme characteristic of spiritual maturity is not how much Bible you know, or how long you can pray, or how many spiritual principles you can teach others. The number one standard is agape. How much do you love, especially the difficult to love? That's the standard. That's the ultimate standard of spiritual maturity, walking in genuine love. And by that, we begin to understand that's how we also slay the giants. You see, what the Lord was saying to the children of Israel, this is how you destroy them. You destroy all those things that are substitutes for me. That's what you have to destroy. So, If you don't destroy them, it it will infest the next generations. 
It is an unavoidable thing. Can I just tell you, a lot of times when I'm dealing with a temptation at, at my age right now, and I still have them, they're sometimes a little different than they were when I were young, was younger, but they're still there. But let me tell you, one of the major motivating forces inside of me is that I want my grandchildren not to have to deal with those things. I'm going to fight those giants today so they don't have to. Because if I yield to them, they will afflict my sons and my daughters. And our children will be taken away from me to serve other gods. And the, the point is, my children, you know, Jesus was called the son of David, right? He was, how many generations after David? He was, I believe he was 28 generations after David, if I've got my arithmetic right. Yet he's called the son of David. Our, my sons and daughters are generations away from me. They will never know my name until they get to heaven. And I want them to say, Grandpa did a pretty good job. I didn't have to fight that fight. Okay, so how do we kill these giants? Well, two of the giants that I want to deal with today are the giant, and I love, I, you can't improve on this, the name of this giant. It's the giant of be right. Now, one of the things that this giant is, and let's go into it. I want to give you a, a list of the be right giant and some of his characteristics. And let's look at Job 40, verse 8. And this is the Lord talking to Job. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? One of the real characteristics of the be right giant is that everybody is privileged and should know my opinion. <laughs> the be right giant says, everybody's entitled to my opinion, and I'm always right, and uh, I really think highly of my opinion, more highly than I would ever consider any of yours. The be right giant is the giant that probably causes more divorces than any other giant. This giant is the reason people don't stay in relationships. Can I just tell you, um, if, if, if you're doing marriage counseling, and, if, and I hope you don't have to, but <laughs> it's actually wonderful, but it's also difficult because you're dealing with people that actually act like a lying with their giants. They want to be allied with their giants. <laughs> Instead of killing them, they'd rather kill their marriage or kill their relationship with their kids or their friends or their business partners. They'd rather have an ally in the giant. And so as a consequence, their life is strewn with dead relationships because of this. And this be right giant is one of the primary giants. 
This past week, I was invited uh, to go and pray for a very devout Muslim man who his heart was warmed by his by someone in this church, Parker Kobath, who has just loved him unconditionally, and he's he's dying of uh, he's got a terminal um, cancer that if not reversed will kill him. He's in his late thirties, and uh, he wanted Parker to come and see him, and Parker wanted me to come with him. And one of the very first things out of his mouth is he said, now, you know, I don't believe that Jesus is God, that God, Jesus is God thing. And, you know, my B-right giant was standing there and said, why don't you get up and walk out? You know, you got to defend the truth. But the God who is loved didn't say that. He's undefensive. He is not all uptight about who he is. So why should I be? So I said, you know, and I just, I got quiet, and I said, Lord, what am I supposed to say? I mean, you know, I'm not going to deny you, you know, that verse, the, you know, the B-right giant was over there preaching that one to me. Can't deny him, you know. And the Lord said, tell him you respect him because there is only one God, and no one agrees with him more than you do. And that shocked him when I said that. And so we began to talk. And of course, eventually, as the story ends, I ended up praying for him in the name of the God named Jesus. Now, and I, and I was, but I, what I didn't do was I didn't, see, God, God's constantly working through Christ Jesus to reconcile us to himself. And he's already done all the heavy lifting. And argumentativeness is not part of his demeanor. In fact, that's one of the things that frustrates a lot of young Christians, is they really want an argumentative God to go out there and defend himself constantly. And he's just not that defensive because he's very secure in who he is. And so he reveals himself through the person of Jesus and he doesn't have to always be right. Now, let me just kind of give you, fear and shame are the two initial negative responses of the fall. Remember, they were afraid when the Lord and they covered themselves, fear and shame. Those are the two dominant negative emotions that drive most of us. And I'm going to give you three fears that I believe are the reason we have to be right. The number one fear is the fear of abandonment. And this fear makes the be right actually a little bit on the attractive side. Somebody that has this fear operating, they actually are somebody that looks often, you like them. Most be right people you don't like. But this one you do. And here's, let me, let me just describe <clears throat> The need to be more right is mostly based on fear, uncertainty, and our desire to feel connected to each other. It's an anxiety of being abandoned. The need to be right can be a symptom of this anxiety, Many of uh, this anxiety that somebody's just going to leave us. Now, here's why. Many of us are unconsciously worried that the people close to us will leave us. 
if we're wrong. So we become overly obsessed with making sure we're right. And this is actually a form of people-pleasing. It's a really subtle be right. You know, that one really has, that giant hadn't affected me that much. Mine's the next one, which is a lot more obnoxious. (laughs) But, But it's still the be right giant. This giant actually kind of makes you really an expert and you usually are right but you're not right out of love you're right out of fear and your fear is that people will find out that you are actually imperfect and therefore abandon you so you kill that giant by getting over your fear of abandonment because you will ne- he will never leave you and he will never forsake you the second one is fear of failure In a study looking at relationships between young athletes and their parents, researchers have found an irrefutable fact that parents with high expectations for achievement and the children's fear of failure is directly proportional to the negative responses the parents have when their children fail. And this, this is, we could talk about athletics That's where the study's been, but it could be academics. It could be sociological. Um, The more the kids fear consequence of failure, the more negative the response. And many of you remember the story a few years ago where Volkswagen was literally lying uh, to the American government about their emission standards, they had reprogrammed the software in their emission stuff <coughs> because the employees were so afraid of disappointing the head honchos who had a, a goal to have better emissions on their diesel engines. Do you guys remember that? It really, it was just a black eye. They were afraid of failure. They were afraid of that, and it it totally altered their responses. And so they had to be right, and they were, had to be right. They were willing to lie. In other words, they were willing to charge God. And see, this is what happens. We begin to, because we have to be right, we end up being completely wrong. And the final one, and this is, this is uh, the fear of being wrong, creates dogmatic, rigid over-talkers who challenge anyone who comes up with alternative facts. Basically, the be, this be right eliminates this great virtue in your soul, curiosity. Do you know when you meet somebody that has to be right, they have an amazing lack of curiosity about anything, especially you. You know, when I talk to somebody... I don't need them to want to know my life story. But it would be nice if they actually knew my name. What's your name? Uh, and can I just tell you, there's, there's, now, this is a whole broad subject, but one of the things about Be Right folks is they have a real hard time being a good listener. Can you see how this probably 
doesn't help marriage if you have a be right. Here's the other danger in be right is if you have a be right giant in your life and you've, you've developed a, an alliance with a be right giant, then here's what's going to happen. Um, you're never going to be able to form an alliance with anybody else because everybody else is imperfect. And so you become arrogant, you get self-righteous, sanctimonious, narrow-minded, no better than anyone, and your attitude drives people away. And not only are you driving people away, you're actually driving away enlightenment and new knowledge and new insight. And when you refuse to consider the opinion of others, you slam the door on new ideas and new ways of thinking. And can I just say, you know who some of the worst people are in the world for that? Let me draw a circle around me. I won't point a finger at you at all. I'll just say me. Because, you know, I know the Bible, the authoritative Word of God. And, you know, the problem with most church splits are not a love of the truth. Most church splits are the love of my understanding of the truth. And that doesn't mean truth isn't important. And it doesn't mean that there may not be moments when we have to separate, but those moments are much, much less frequent by heaven's mandate than what ends up happening down here. And... So I, one of the main reasons for this thing for being, not wanting to be wrong is uh, I, I think I have a higher sense of justice than you do. It, when, I, when I just have to be right. And if you have a high justice meter, which some of you do, and that's a good thing, just remember your justice can become injustice real quick because you become cruel and non-relational. And what immediately begins to happen is you'd rather win the argument than to maintain the relationship. And God has never done that with any of us. He just hasn't. That's not his modus operandi, and it shouldn't be yours. So... <laughs> When you accept others, you know, here's another thing, and this leads us into the next giant, but here's the deal. You just have to get over the fact that there are going to be people that have a different opinion than you, and one of the greatest gifts you can give anyone is the acceptance that they are different than you. That's a great gift to someone, and I will still maintain my connection with you even though we have a, a disagreement. Oh, yeah, joylessness. I forgot that one. Have you ever met somebody that had to be right that wasn't also kind of grim? It's kind of like, you, you need to take up drinking or something. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. That's not what I said. Okay. You get my... I'm. <laughs> Here's what Mark Twain said. It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that ain't so. There you go. 
All right, stay in control. Well, let's talk about what causes you to want to stay in control. This is probably the biggest of all the giants. This giant affects every one of us. And as I like to say, some of us are just ogre type of staying control. We and that giant have formed an alliance, and it makes us the very ugly, unattractive person. And then there's a few of us that have a, we have a relationship with the staying control giant, but we've got enough self-awareness to know how to manipulate people so they don't know we're trying to control them. But it's still the same giant, and this giant is insidious. And by the way, these giants work in cahoots, so stay in control and be right are often one on the right side and one on the left. They hem you in, and the Lord can't get a word in edgewise. So the verse for this one is Luke chapter 4. And, uh, and he said to him, this is Satan, to Jesus in the, in the wilderness, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. And he's talking about the kingdoms of the earth. And, of course, Jesus refused him. But here's the deal. He was, he was, what was he doing? He's saying, in exchange for your worship, I will give you what I now control and I will control you. Because control, and, and this is a really theological subject, and I, I, I don't have time to unpack it too much, and I'm almost sure that anything I say will probably be uh, held against me in a court of law by those who have to be right. But, but um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and step into it. In, uh, in John chapter 8, verses 1, Jesus has been contending from chapter 6 and 7, particularly with the Pharisees who are, it says, and they picked up stones to stone him. They were, he said, you're trying to kill me. They said, you've got a demon. I mean, there was this conflict. It was a con- uh, just a conflict that was boiling. It, it was, had been simmering, and it became, came to a boiling point. And so that's kind of the context for um, the story of the adulterous woman who's been caught by the Pharisees. They drag her in front of Jesus early in the morning. They're hoping he comes back because they're trying to, and it says they're trying to trick him. They're trying to be right. And they're trying to gain control over the crowds that they're losing. Now, again, I, I, I got... Being in control is, you know, you're in a lot of good company if you want to be hang out with me of somebody that had that giant in their life. So this is kind of confession time. It's also, I know that I'm in good company. But, but here, here's the thing. You don't control anything except you. Any other control you have is an illusion. It is a a fable. You can't control your kids. I mean, you can control your little bitty ones, but even your teenagers you can't control. That's one of the reasons we all have to learn to pray, because prayer is weakness, and weakness is not control. It's cooperating in a relationship that the 
and I'm going to, this is where I'm going to get in trouble. The uncontrolling God cooperates with the uncontrolling man or woman. And you go, what do you mean? We have songs that talk about he's in control. And I like to say it this way. And I just, I'll just say, if he was in control, everything would be a lot better than it is. And you go, well, Steve, that sounds like you're violating the sovereignty of God truth. I didn't say he wasn't in charge. I said he's not controlling everything. He is in charge, and he's going to wrap it all up. And you don't want that day to happen because he will take control at that moment. But the rest of the time, and this explains so much of why there is evil in the earth, is he's looking for a relationship. How many of you got married because your husband and the wife said, you have to love me and walk down that aisle right this second. Any, anybody here did that? I mean, maybe if you're from some countries where they have arranged marriages, you might have said, yeah, that was exactly what happened. But that's not the way we do it here because we choose. We have this choice. And God, the greatest characteristics of deep love is that you have a choice. See, God did... He did, because he's so faithful to truth, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, strength. So he commanded love. But then he turns right around and says, even though I commanded it, the most important verse in the Bible, in my opinion, is 1 John 4, 9. We love him because he first loved us. In other words, Even though God said you shall love me, I'm going to love you first and continuously and nonstop. And because of that, you're going to respond to my love for you. And so we're we're second responders. We're not first responders. He's the first responder. Okay. So God is not, when I say he's not in control, he's, he's he's in perfect control. But he's, what he's not doing is he's not pulling the strings on your life. And even when things don't seem to be going right, if you have a theology that basically says, well, God, God's the one pulling the strings here. And the next thing you know, you're mad at God because you have a misconception of his influence in your life, which is what happens to a lot of young believers. And they don't understand This thing is going to work out if you stay faithful to him, no matter what the enemies are doing. Yeah, but I got cancer and I believe in healing. I believe my kids are supposed to follow Jesus and they're going crazy. I stay yielded. I I think we go, Jesus was the son of God. He's God in the flesh. He got killed. I mean, Peter wanted to stay in control, didn't he? You, you, you surely cannot die, okay? That ain't going to happen. And what did Jesus say to Peter at that moment? Whose interest did he have? The one who likes to stay in control, Satan. He said, you've got Satan's interest. <laughs> so Jesus is standing before these guys They're dragging this adulterous woman, and they say, look, you know, what are you going to do? And Jesus says, 
Nothing. That's a, that's a really non-controlling, not, that's a very non-be-right kind of thing. He said he bent down and started drawing. In the, and then he, then he asked a question. It's really fascinating that the God of the universe asked a question instead of giving a mandate when he's talking to people he wants to maintain a relationship with. See, those guys weren't wanting to stone this woman. And you know what? I think he discerned that. He knew they wanted to be right. So he just said, well, he who's without sin cast the first stone. And then he began to write some more. That's it. That was the lecture. It wasn't a lecture. Because what he was saying is, I know what you guys are doing. But I, I, wanna, I want to be as relational as I can to be with you. I don't have to be right. Look, I wrote that law. I understand it. And you don't. Because you're not getting the heart of what I was trying to do, which is take care of families and familiar relationships. And, and so, what Jesus did was be completely in the opposite spirit of the giants I've just described. He didn't have to be right. You know, he could have said, well, you guys don't get it all because, you know, where's the man? Because, you know, if you caught her in adultery, I know you had to catch the man who was with her in bed. And guess what? You're supposed to stone them both. I've actually wondered why Jesus didn't do that because I have a be right tendency. I mean, you know, if he's, Jesus is consulting with me, I'm probably going to go, Jesus, why? hey, you know, there's a verse in there. You need to use that verse. Get him. Stick it to him. How many of us like to stick it to him with that verse that's, oh, this is a, this is, this is, this is a broadsword, man. I can, oh, I can cut their head off. I can right in two. They won't, they'll, they'll not be left standing when I get through with them. Okay. I've never felt that way ever about using the Bible. I'm just, I'm describing a friend of mine. Okay. All right, we're going to have to wrap this up. Do we have the list of things that... You know, to, to stay in control, here's, a, here's an interesting thing. Um, here's the irony of kind of this stay in control, is you begrudge others in leadership. You know, we got a whole culture that just throws off all authority. The son, all you got to do is start reading John, and what he says is this, I don't do anything out of my own authority. I, I stay connected to the Father, and I'm demonstrating something, and this is, this is part of that whole theological mystery that is the, that he's God in the flesh, he's God in the Son, God the Son. Now, here's the interesting thing, God the Son uh, 
is, is mentioned, oh, 50 plus times. But the Son of Man reference, God in the flesh, I think it's like 170 times. Isn't that interesting? Jesus was, and there's no reason for that other than this. He's trying to say something. When Jesus walked on this earth, he set aside his divinity. Not all of it, but the part that does the light show. You know, the spectacular, the, the, the God awesome stuff. He set that aside and he took on the form of a servant. God, God, God is not our servant, but Jesus took on the form of a servant and became a man and emptied himself and humbled himself. He, he, he even said this, no one takes my life, I lay it down. That's what he says. I'm choosing to do this. I'm choosing to set aside my prerogatives is, is another way of saying it. And so what happens when we give up, the, the, the way you deal with this stay in control is through yieldedness to the Father. And it is much harder, it's simple to say, it's simple to understand, it's really hard when you're in the minute, in the moment, when one of your fears, and here's the fears of why people yield. They have the fear, I wrote, fear of being controlled, fear of chaos, and a fear of inferiority. Fear of chaos. Some people that really manifest a, 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 a giant of being in control, these are people, maybe their mom or dad were Alcoholics, that's a, that's a classic one. Could be something else. You just, your childhood was a mess. And you're trying to bring order and security by controlling those around you. And you don't realize you're driving the ones around you away. You can't control them. It's not your job to control them. And parents, can I just tell you? That's why we emphasize in this church, you've got to build a connection with your kids. Your mandates will go about as far as God's mandate did with us. Did you hear what I just said? See, God is not, he, he, he tells us his truth and our kids need to know the truth. That's, that's, you know, if, if you do these things, it'll reap death in your life. It's just an inevitability. <laughs> but what you're really wanting is that they want to imitate who you are because they see in you who they want to become. And they do that because they have a deep connection. And what will eventually happen is that deep connection will attract them more than all the temptation that they're facing. Does this make sense? Did I say that right? It's a complex idea, but... What's happening is your kids get their identity from you by wanting to be like you, and it will overcome their temptation that's surrounding them that is very powerful. And it doesn't mean they won't temporarily walk away, but what will happen is that pull of that connection. And that's what the Lord is constantly doing. Psalm 73 talks about 
Lord, I'm just looking around and I see the wicked prosper and, you know, they've got good health and look at me. I'm just, life is awful for me. <laughs> and, he, and he says, you know, and he, and he just goes verse after verse of kind of complaint about how good everybody else is getting it. And then he says, but then I got into the sanctuary of the Lord and I saw their end. And he's basically saying, God, I want you in control of everything, including all my enemies and my life so that nothing bad ever happens. And then he goes, but see, the greatest level of love is that God lets you choose to love him. He doesn't. He commands it because it's good for you, but he doesn't demand it by controlling you to become a robot. Let's all stand. How many of you would like to slay a giant tonight, today? A giant of, I got to be right. People that have the giant of be right often are. They're, They're actually technically right. They just alienate everybody around them with their be right. Have you ever been in a room where the, there's a, like a, a PhD or somebody's a brilliant scientist and two people that don't know anything hardly at all about the subject matter are arguing with each other and then they find out Mr. Genius over there hadn't said a thing because he doesn't have to be right and he actually knows he is. And he can inform them but if they're not curious they don't even find out. I've I'm describing a friend of mine. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we can slay the giants that are so appealing at times to us. The giant that says, I must be in control, that I must be in right, I must be right. Lord, I just pray that you would help us slay those giants so that we can love with agape love so deeply that we never yield to the influence of those giants. That we love our spouses and our friends and our business partners, our clients, our bosses in a way that doesn't reflect the need to be right or the need to be in control. Lord, we yield ourselves to the Father of lights in whom there's nothing but light, no shifting shadows, no dark spots anywhere in your character. And Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our midst as a church, that you're, you're, make, you're, you're developing emotional and relational health and that it'll be a spirituality that will change the world. I'm going to ask the elders and the life group leaders if you'd come forward. I just want us to pray um, for anybody that's sick, anybody that would like to be filled with the Holy Spirit, anyone who has a need. Maybe you're having a crisis. Maybe you want to pray over some of what was talked about today. 
But I just want to invite you. So to, we always want to invite folks to just, sometimes you can't get stuff done on your own. You have to do it with a brother or sister. Amen.